Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be definitely having a blast here with the guests, definitely getting inspired, learning about building, scaling, taking a little bit longer, you know, perhaps delaying to really get that financing in. But we're going to be learning a lot today. And I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Jake Sobro. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So originally born in LA, but obviously, you know, Fresno was saying, you know, it touched your heart, you know, from a very, very early beginning. So I guess, what was your upbringings? You know, how was life growing up there? Yeah. So um, I'm the son of Mexican immigrants uh, uh, on my dad's side and uh, Dust Bowl folks on my mom's side. And I grew up in Los Angeles until junior high school. And I never really found belonging, never really sort of felt as though uh, I fit in or, uh, um, you know, whatever that might be. In junior high school, there was actually an opportunity in my father's career that, that brought him to Fresno. Um, and uh, growing up in East Los Angeles in a difficult upbringing, really poor, my dad was eager to get us out of uh, Los Angeles and go to sort of a new beginning. And so our family moved to Fresno. And although reluctant at first, when we uh, sort of began to settle in here, I experienced, I think, home, right? The, all of the things that, that make a place special. Um, uh, very quickly met some of, you know, lifelong friends uh, and met the girl that would become my wife. Uh, um, and so that experience and the experience of growing up uh, during high school here in Fresno uh, really endeared me to this place. I didn't know it so much at the time, uh, because, you know, as a kid, I just wanted to get out of there and go to, you know, sort of the center of the universe, whether that's Manhattan or uh, San Francisco. Uh, but deep inside of me uh, was developing a deep attachment to this place that uh, certainly uh, um, uh, has some ties to the work that we're doing today with Bitwise. And I'm sure that for you too, that must have played a big influence, you no? Know? Like in terms of dealing with uncertainty, with doing your own thing with with trying to achieve a better tomorrow, you know, getting that influence from an inspiration from from your dad who who came here to the country and and had to build everything for himself. I think that's right. And I mean, there are some interesting parallels to the work that we're doing today uh, uh, from my dad's story. So obviously, first generation. Um, uh, and it will, he was working as a night watch security guard in Los Angeles, young adult, 
uh, and sees a, goes home from work, sees a commercial for uh, this thing called the Computer Learning Center. And as far as he knew, that was a place you could go to learn to computer. Uh, and uh, what that meant is a better life. Um, he did, and ultimately that program was an inflection point in his life, uh, led to a high growth, high wage career that allowed him to afford a very different sort of opportunity to my siblings and I uh, than what he was able to enjoy as a kid. Um, uh, and uh, that experience uh, certainly traces to the heart of the work we do at Bitwise, wanting to enable a similar story uh, for um, uh, folks who historically have been excluded from the opportunity that the tech industry offers. And we're going to be talking about that in just a, in just a few minutes here. But you know, in your case, you studied political science, uh, and then you know, eventually you landed in law school. So why why did you want to go to law school? Yeah, you know, from a very young age, uh, my career path, what I wanted in life was to be an attorney, uh, uh, then to be mayor, then governor, then president. Uh, and law school was the obvious way there. Um, I was always really inspired by sort of the, uh, uh, you know, arguing in front of the Supreme Court idea of justice and uh, uh, getting to be a courtroom attorney. And so uh, law school was in the plans. And um, I didn't enjoy law school, but I did enjoy the practice of law. Um, and uh, had no plans of, of, of changing that. Um, I really was excited about the ability to uh, serve folks well. I practiced intellectual property law and uh, serve folks well in building something that was deeply important to them. Amidst that, of course, uh, met this exciting entrepreneur, Irma, and that uh, um, led me in a different direction that's been equally as exciting. So tell us about that, because obviously, uh, being an attorney, an uh, intellectual property attorney, you know, it's uh, quite a different path from what you're doing with Bitwise. I mean, it's like a 360, you know, degree. <laughs> so, uh, so what happened there and, and what was that journey of, of becoming an entrepreneur and bringing Bitwise to life? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a year and a half out of law school when we start Bitwise, and everybody is sort of, and Bitwise is a complex animal uh, uh, as it is, like so difficult to explain and understand, particularly in the early days. Um, and so people, I feel like in my community are looking at me and being like, what are you doing, man? You got a good job. <laughs> like, and you just started. So I was practicing intellectual property law here in Fresno, building a practice at a firm that I really love, surrounded by good people. Um, uh, and uh, as a part of building that practice, there was this five foot nothing Latina from uh, the west side of Fresno County that I didn't know, but I, I knew she was doing all of these really, really exciting and innovative things in tech. She had started several companies, had started a, uh, a coding competition, um, had started a co-working space. And I just wanted to be a part of the stuff she was doing. I wanted to be her attorney. I wanted to be her friend. And so I sought Irma out and uh, we began to work together in the capacity of attorney client and got to support some of the really exciting businesses that she had started um, and then got to dig in around this competition called 59 Days of Code that was um, doing some really extraordinary work in uh, causing folks to build an MVP and launch a business. Um, uh, and uh, we formed an independent nonprofit and, and scaled that competition. And as we were doing that, we realized that we had a vision for the future of Fresno that was very similar. Um, uh, and I think in each other came to see, gosh, this is somebody I'd really love to build something with. Like, uh, it's, it's sort of like that first time you, if you're any good at basketball, you play basketball with somebody who is, who's good also, right? And you, you begin to sense each other on the court and it's exciting. You think, well, I bet we could beat just about anybody. And I think that same feeling sort of emerged in Irma and I. Uh, and not long after that, we began thinking, okay, 
how do we how do we build a company that causes the future in our city that we want? Um, uh, and uh, um, a model sort of began to come together. And while we were working as attorneys, and she is a, me as an attorney, she is a founder, began to uh, sort of spend our uh, uh, nights and weekends chipping away at at this model and trying to get to a point where we had confidence. Uh, trying to get a sense of well, what would it take to get this off the ground and, and, and seeing if we could trace to some friends and family capital uh, around that. And all the while, I was sort of on the clock. My wife was pregnant with our, uh, our first uh, child, Tinsley, uh, and uh, our sense here at home was, you got to figure this out <laughs> before I go into labor or you're going to be an attorney for this next season. Uh, and fortunately, <laughs> things uh, wound up coming together ahead of Tinsley's arrival and, and uh, sort of the rest is the history of Bitwise. That's amazing. So then, so then tell us about Bitwise. I mean, what, what ended up being the business model of Bitwise? Yeah, so the, the business model um, uh, really at the beginning and though evolved today for Bitwise uh, is three complementary parts that form a mutually reinforcing uh, tech ecosystem where it didn't exist before. The first is workforce training. Uh, we teach people the skills they need to access opportunity in tech, um, uh, and we serve almost exclusively folks coming from a story of systemic poverty or a historically disenfranchised community. We pair the tech skills training with the non-technical resource that's necessary to make space in their lives, transportation, childcare, mental and physical health, uh, emotional well-being, compensation during the period of learning. Uh, and by delivering on that resource can create space in their life to access the brilliance that they might have in and for the technology industry. The, the revenue model for that is we attach to workforce training dollars, uh, government level, uh, corporate level, uh, and uh, at the philanthropic level. So we're really a dynamic sort of ability to leverage different categories of dollar uh, to bring to bear a tech workforce that is representative of the diversity of the cities that we serve. So that's the first sliver of the business. The second is tech consulting. Uh, like an emphasis, we build custom technology for customers around the country and world. Our distinction is that our teams are built almost exclusively out of our workforce training programs. Uh, so we're raising up diverse and representative talent, and then we're, uh, that talent is joining our team uh, to scale uh, uh, one of the fastest growing tech consulting shops in the country. And what that does is twofold. It empowers our scale, uh, and then it also uh, accelerates the rate at which others hire out of our programs. Uh, and so it gives us uh, a, the ability to demonstrate the objective worthiness of this talent uh, and can dig into some of the areas that we serve. But the, the last component of the business is uh, how we root this in place. We acquire blighted uh, uh, real estate at the center of the cities we serve. Uh, we improve it and lease it to ourselves and other tech and tech enabled companies to create a supportive community that ha desires access to the talent, uh, and our workforce training programs are located in those buildings. What that does is it, for the student, gives you natural community, natural professional opportunity, natural belonging, uh, and for the company, access to talent. And then that begins to ripple out in those places. Uh, those three pieces form up the Bitwise solution that then we, we founded here in Fresno as it uh, um, gained traction. Uh, we uh, uh, launched into a California expansion strategy and then now a national expansion strategy. So I guess from recovering lawyer to recovering lawyer to here, I mean, how was the transition for you from having the attorney hat to really having the operator hat? Because it's not an easy transition. 
I think it was, you know, for me, it, it felt natural and not because the two careers are, are perfectly analogous, but because I think what excited me about uh, being an intellectual property attorney was the idea of building, building a practice and helping uh, uh, the clients I served build whatever it is that they were working on and usually was a business. Um, and so bringing that to um, uh, into the, the startup space uh, wound up being super exciting because we could go faster. I mean, we could we could build at a speed that I'd never experienced before. Um, uh, and the autonomy also was was kind of like a drug, right? You can you can try stuff, and there's no one telling you that it's the right or wrong answer in a way that just is not characteristic to the legal industry. Um, uh, and so, uh, uh, for me, I think it excited the things that were uh, sort of most natural to me in being an attorney uh, and gave me a really exciting playground to build. And then to get to do that alongside someone with more experience than me, who is candidly smarter than me uh, uh, in Irma, uh, made for a really fun uh, opportunity to build this uh, as a team. And in, in this case, I mean, typically, you know, you'll hear the the startups, oh, you know, we go to Silicon Valley, we raise a bunch of money, we make it happen, and 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 then, you know, like, everything is celebration, no? Obviously, in this case, it was none of that. I mean, it was five years, literally, like, pushing things through, you know, before you even thought about raising capital. So so why did it come about like that? And and just give us an insight as to what was that like? Because it's not the, the traditional route of a hyper-growth company. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the reality is when you start a company in Fresno, California, if you imagine your toolbox, like venture capital is not in it. That's just not right. what we do. And like the, the, the guts of starting a growth startup is you lose money. And you do that in Silicon Valley. And it's like, of course, that's the way you do this. Uh, you do that in Fresno. And it's like, you're failing. <laughs> why, are, why are you bad at building a business? And so for our first five years, we launched the company in Fresno and we had uh, a bit of like sort of friends and family capital. We wouldn't have known to call it that, uh, that uh, sustained the business. Uh, and then uh, we sort of grew and we had to, we had to be profitable or uh, find sort of uh, navigate to unique opportunities. Um, but what happened is the company began to sort of hit that hyper growth trajectory and we realized really quickly, like, we can't afford this. Um, and, and so that's like uh, four or five years into the business. And we knew that this thing called venture capital existed in some far off land. Uh, and so um, uh, we, we said, well, we're going to figure it out. We're gonna, we believe so deeply in the work that we want to find the resource necessary to scale it. Um, and what that meant was um, really trying and failing at raising money. Um, uh, and I mean, by way of example, in Silicon Valley, you know, okay, this is this is what goes into a deck, and this is how long it should be. And um, you know, there's no hard and fast, but people know the general rules. We built this 72-page booklet, and we started going around to meetings uh, in the Bay Area. And it was sitting in a meeting, I won't disclose with who, where where um, uh, uh, Irma and I are asked that we've 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 made a pitch that you know now probably made no sense, but uh, we made a pitch, and uh, um, uh, somebody is now asking us questions, and they ask, so are you raising your Series A? It was literally the first time Irma and I had ever heard the word Series A, and so we quickly sort of look at each other and we say, well, yeah, yes, of course, yeah, this is our Series A, um, uh, and and that's how we learned those words, and then kind of kept iterating on that. Um, 
it took us 18 months to raise that Series A. And I, I think, you know, the the it was a $27 million round and it was the first thing we'd ever raised. So it was both big and we were something of a unique company. Um, we didn't understand that eventually we would land sort of on the line between venture and social impact. And so had to navigate to that spot. I think the delaying factors were both our greenness and, and lack of knowledge in, in raising capital, but then also... Um, we encountered some real bias. The I don't present as, as Latinx, Irma does. Um, uh, and we'd literally sit in rooms where we would be answering questions and they would ignore Irma for an hour. Uh, um, and we would encounter explicit bias uh, and, and skepticism that uh, somebody doing farm labor had any place in the technology industry. Um, and so the fundamentals of our, our business ran into deeply entrenched opposition. Um, and it took you know, the, the finding of real navigators and, and, and people who are just the best humans on the planet to get us over the hump. And the folks I'll point to, so uh, uh, Mitch and Frida Kapoor, uh, who led our Series A, Rich Dennis, who co-led our Series A, Morgan Simon at Candide Capital, uh, and John Duong at, the, uh, at Lumina. The, running into these folks uh, who saw through our inexperience who, who had, were deeply aligned to what the business was trying to do from a social impact standpoint and said, we not only want to invest, we want to help you figure out uh, um, uh, how to couch this in venture terms so that we get the capital we need into the business to scale it. And so we sort of got a masterclass in, in raising from those folks, uh, and all of them are still involved in the business. Um, uh, and so uh, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to getting over that hump uh, um, and did raise the Series A. Uh, and from there, things um, I think as we've learned how to trace the things of the business to the things of venture capital, um, uh, have had an easier time raising since. And 18 months, I mean, it's a crazy amount of time. I and mean, typically when, when you're racing and it takes more than six months, I mean, there's something that needs to be changed and it's going back to the drawing board. So I guess in this, in this case, if you were, you know, to be able to go back and do things differently, you know, to be able to optimize and to reduce that time frame of 18 months, I mean, what do you think, you know, you, you would do? One, we were having all of the wrong conversations. The, the investor, particularly at the Series A stage for a bitwise, very unlikely to be a Kleiner Perkins or Sequoia, right? There are, is a well-defined category of investors now, even better defined now than it was uh, um, you know, when we were raising the Series A, uh, um, that are the right conversations. Uh, Cape or Capital, uh, uh, family offices like uh, uh, Rich Dennis's, uh, um, uh, and then folks who straddle the line. Motley Fool has been a huge investor in Bitwise, and they are investing in an extraordinary set of companies, purely venture capital lens, but deeply aligned to our work. And so getting to those folks more quickly with the conversation would be one. Uh, um, you simply can't spend your time on every single conversation if you know it's unlikely to be a fit. Um, I think number two is we had to learn how to articulate our business to the things of venture, right? To the return profile, to the unit economics. We hadn't we, we were not building a business school curriculum here in Fresno and certainly weren't, didn't realize we were building a venture growth company. We were just doing the work. Um, and, and, and so we didn't, we didn't ever pause and say, what are the unit economics here? What does scale look like? We were just building the business. And so our own ignorance, I think we just had to learn. Um, uh, I, I think are the two things that, that were um, where we could have, knowing, now what we, knowing then what we know now, 
could have accelerated and maybe avoided some of those bumps and bruises. But I mean, the other you know non obvious thing when you go out to raise, particularly your first time, you're either you're usually either out of money or soon to be out of money. So you take eighteen yeah. months. Uh, we ran out of money several times, and so just a really like turbulent uh, uh, journey there. And you went from 18 months at the Series A level to 90 days at the Series B. So, so why 90 days? Hey, we take good notes. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> we, we really studied what happened with the Series A um, and said, when we go out to raise again, we want to optimize this experience and here's how we're going to do it. And, and so we essentially built internally what we call a strike team that was dedicated to how do we stand up the materials? How do we stand up the right meetings? Who do we want to talk to first? And how are we not going to spend any time on, on conversations that you know, are, are going to be you know, syndicate followers, uh, want to get the lead in place, want to get several term sheets? Here's how we're going to elicit those um, and define that process. And then we executed on that process. I think you know, some of that is luck, like, uh, uh, but some of it, uh, 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 much of it, we think, uh, was learning from our first experience. Um, I think you know, too often we tend to like uh, um, uh, treat uh, capital raising as this uh, um, sort of like almost religious experience of like everything has to come together organically and it has to uh, um, uh, be just right in terms of timing and you don't want to raise too soon or too late. I think the the reality is, at least our view, is you can you can create those circumstances, uh, um, uh, and, and you just have to actually go, do the work of creating the right circumstances to ready the company to take on to execute on a round and close it. Um, uh, and at least for the Series B, uh, um, that worked well for us. Because now, what is the total amount, Jake, that you guys have raised to date for Bitwise? We've raised uh, up near a hundred million dollars uh, into the operating business. Nice. And in terms of, you know, going back to Bitwise, I mean, what have been, you know, for the business, some of the, uh, I would say, like a barrier to barriers to entry, obstacles and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things uh, that has been a real challenge is getting to the point where you're able to communicate to uh, on the business side, the key drivers in the business. And that then guides how we grow and how we explain our impact uh, uh, externally. So drivers for us, for a long time, you try and get really, we, we, we wound up being sort of decentralized with it, thinking about, well, drivers in this category are this and drivers in this category are this. Today, we know that the drivers of growth in the business are our ability to serve students and serve them well. Uh, what that means is the more students we can serve, the more we cause we drive revenue in our workforce business, the more we uh, are able to hire and scale into our tech consulting business, and the more people want to be in our physical spaces. Uh, uh, so the ability to serve more students drives growth across every category of the business. It's the first domino. Placing that business in more cities allows us to serve more people. Uh, uh, and so we began to understand that going to additional places uh, would uh, help us scale the business. And so uh, it also uh, had the primary effect of allowing us to serve more people in more cities uh, in a way that grew their macro economy. So I think getting to that understanding was really, really critical and important. And then underlying that was being able to articulate that to our various stakeholders, being able to explain that to a city of here's how we want to come alongside the work going on in your city and we want to amplify and accelerate it. Being able to explain that to government workforce funders, right? Uh, that here's why 
you want to think differently about your spending. And instead of just investing in truck driving and the building trades uh, as uh, pathways to work, what if we thought about the tech economy and roles as computer programmers and digital marketers and on and on, uh, and then being able to articulate that unique value proposition of uh, to a enterprise customer uh, um, on the tech consulting side, uh, here is why we can serve you faster and better. Uh, and the ultimate technology we're building uh, might more powerfully meet the needs of your end customer because our tech workforce looks like your end customer. Um, uh, so those pieces, getting to the, that understanding, uh, I think was slow for us, but as we did, uh, it has facilitated uh, the, I think, really exciting scaling of the work. So now let's think about the, the, the future here. And imagine that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Bitwise is completely realized. What does that world look like? That world looks like really vibrant technology economies uh, in what we call underdog cities. So Bakersfield, Fresno, Merced, Toledo, uh, uh, a next wave of cities that we'll announce later this year. Um, uh, and those tech economies uh, having tech work for workers whose diversity uh, uh, looks like that city. Uh, um, uh, and what that means is that we've built an inclusive growth economy um, uh, in uh, cities that didn't have it before. So driving individual outcomes and driving macroeconomic growth in those markets. Um, uh, and we think uh, uh, that not only has a, an economic impact on those lives and those places, but it has a really significant impact on democracy. Because uh, as folks we know get into a job that is able to sustain them and enable enables them to enjoy prosperity, uh, they become not only active taxpayers, they become active voters, they become civically engaged. Um, and now the voices that are leading in uh, our country, right, uh, are representative of our country. Uh, they actually represent the diversity of our country, and we've given everybody a seat at the table. So for us, that's the ultimate ambition, um, and it happens one individual student at a time uh, and one city at a time, uh, and uh, we're super excited to create that future. Nice. So one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine if I put you into a time machine, and I'm able to transport and bring you back to that time where you were working at the law firm. And at this point, you know, you're speaking with Irma, you're thinking about what's possible, the future and all that stuff. And here you are, you know, now the, the, the older Jake coming in and having a, t a chat with that, with that younger Jake, and you are able to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a company. What would that be and why based on what you know now? Oh, man, <laughs> there are probably several pieces of advice at every stage. I would want that individual to know that it is going to be harder and take longer uh, than you would expect. Uh, um, uh, and and I think the reason is we come into these things with rose colored glasses uh, and we pretend as though the the growth of this business is not going to consume unhealthy amounts of space in my life. And so you wind up uh, trying to do it all at once, trying to be uh, uh, a, a dad, a husband, a founder, all at the same time uh, with no boundaries. And that can send you off of the rails. And I, I think that if I better understood the size of the task, um, uh, I would have been better at all three of those functions uh, along the way. And so I think that would be the, the soft advice. I think the hard advice would be <laughs> raise all of the cash anytime you can as soon as possible, uh, because trying to do this work and build a scaling business with no cash 
um, made for some of the most difficult moments in Bitwise. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are thinking, should I raise all the money that I need or all the money that I can get? What, what would you say there? I think it does depend on the business and it depends on your unique goals. My bias would be always yes, uh, um, uh, particularly if you have a business that is ready to put to work cash, right? Uh, you find yourself, I think, in a really awkward spot if you raise a bunch of cash, which is possible now, and then can't deploy it quickly enough. Um, uh, that's a, the other end of the stick that I think we, you know, nobody tells you about. Um, uh, but if your business is ready to put to work the cash, it is so excruciatingly difficult to, to try and build and sustain the business without having that resource at the table. Um, uh, I think the, you know, the one asterisk is there are some people for whom the primary goal is to own the maximum amount of their business at all times. Um, uh, Irma and I have prioritized building the business that we, uh, uh, we want to build, that we think is important to build over that, that, that extra percentage point uh, of ownership uh, uh, every time. Uh, and I think in the wash, what comes out is a, a, a business that we can grow that much larger because of the capital we've been able to convene around. And just, you know, one bonus question. And I guess for the people that are listening that maybe, you know, they're, they're going to find this inspiring. What has been a good book that you've read that you think, you know, would make a difference, you know, for the people that are listening to perhaps, you know, take a read? And why? Uh, most impactful book I've read during the course of Bitwise was written by a pastor named John Mark Comer. Uh, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Literally life-changing for me. It frames some of the ways we try to live today and some of the ways that that is breaking us. And uh, given a fresh perspective on uh, how we sort of survive this journey of being a founder uh, and also being a healthy human being. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, Jake, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, info at bitwiseindustries.com. Uh, and you can navigate to any one of us uh, at bitwiseindustries.com. Uh, we are Bitwise Industries on all of the social platforms and would love to engage with anybody who's interested. Amazing. Well, Jake, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.